Welcome everybody to episode two of the adult SLP edition of the resource roadmap show. This is brought to you by Therapy Insights. This is where we're going to spend the next hour talking all about the new releases that we've added to the Access Pass library. If you're an Access Pass member and you have the printables feature included in your membership, you have instant access to everything that we're talking about today. And if you're not a member, you can sign up anytime at therapyinsights.com. And we are also offering ASHA CEUs for learning how to use these resources and watching this either via YouTube or listening to it via podcast. And to get the CEU credit, you can just go onto our website and add the CEU feature onto your access pass and then go to CEUs and find this episode number and answer a couple questions and you'll get a certificate of completion for your ASHA CEUs. And I think we should just dive in. I'm excited for the resources we're going to talk about today. I think the one I'm most excited about, and maybe, I don't know if I requested this, or maybe I just sent like the brainwaves out to the universe, but the Apple Watch resource, because the Apple Watch is something that I've been recommending, or at least discussing more with patients before they go home. So I'm glad to have a resource that I can share with them that they can look at later. It's been um, requested a lot. Okay. All right. We're all yeah. on the same. And then we have kind of a fresh take on an older aphasia therapy. Um, another resource I'm excited about is the handout about an esophagram versus a modified barium swallow study. I think that's great for patients and for colleagues. And I learned a lot from it too. And we've got lots of other resources to talk about. So we're going to dive in. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. And we will start off with this first resource, the one that everybody was wanting, um, the Apple Watch safety features. Mm -hmm. So this is Stephanie. I'm one of the medical SLP writers. I work inpatient and outpatient. Um, so this is a feature, well, this was a request for many, many months. Um, and it finally, people really wanted it. So it won. Um, so this is the Apple Watch safety feature handout. And I know I talk a lot about the Apple Watch too with my patients. Um, I do have an Apple Watch myself and I, I get really excited when a patient does come for an evaluation and I see they have an Apple Watch and I'll say, how are you liking your watch? They're like, I just use it to tell time. And so there's just so much potential there for memory strategies, but also for safety. Um, a lot of times families and are nervous about their loved one, either they live alone or they also live with like their spouse or significant other, but falls are a big concern. And so if a person is cognitively able to, you know, you have to charge this guy every day, you have to put it on, unlock it. But if they're able to do those things and learn pretty quickly, they are going to be pretty successful with an Apple watch. So it's just, it's, we're kind of comparing it to the one where you wear around your, your, maybe your neck or your, a button you wear. Those cost um, a significant amount of money per month um, that those are attached to a 24-7 monitoring company, which the Apple Watch isn't. But this is just kind of that nice middle ground for people who need kind of that extra um, alert. If they maybe fall, this will go off. I don't know if any, have you guys ever had it go off on you? No. no. Um, I may have so, the setting turned down because I know that they say, you know, it, it can react to, you know, different things. Like if you're more active. Yeah. Um, so 
mine accidentally did go off, but I hit it on something as I was working out in the yard. And so what happens is there's like this alarm that goes off and it says, Hey, are you like, it doesn't say it, but there's a little screen that pops up. Like, like you fall was detected. Are you okay? You can dismiss it. If, if the person doesn't respond, it's going to keep getting louder over 30 seconds. And then at 90 seconds, it's going to call emergency services and send um, emergency contacts, text messages with the GPS location for that person. Um, I know there's been a lot of news articles about how Apple Watches have saved people's lives when they're out hiking and things. So I am just so excited for this handout um, to just kind of really engage in a conversation about, is this a tool that's appropriate for the, the person who may need it? Going through those pros and cons, there's a whole list of pros and cons. Um, one big benefit is people like that there's no monitoring fee every week, every month, like um, the other, you know, life alert, whatnot. Um, but it's just really an opportunity for the speech pathologist or OT or PT to have a conversation with the patient about if this is an appropriate idea. But at the bottom, I do really kind of explain it's probably best to go talk to an Apple um, employee because they know the most up-to-date information about these products. Um, but yeah, I already want to be using this this week with my patients. So it'll be good. Oh, great. And I forgot to describe it for those of you listening, which I'm yeah. going to get but it's a one-page handout. And it has some basic, it lists the basic features, and then it has a pro con, con list in two different boxes. So easy to read. And it, I think it lays out um, some of the pros and cons very clearly so people can make an informed choice if it's going to work for them. And I know some patients like they don't, they can't afford um, a cell phone mm -hmm. plan, or they don't have a cell phone that the watch can connect to. So those are all things to consider too. Uh, I also really just, like the graphic that um, the graphic designer chose. It has a picture of a person wearing an Apple watch and it says, it looks like you've taken a hard fall and there's that SOS you slide. And then there's I'm, I fell, but I'm okay. So it really shows a patient what that screen is going to look like or a family member, what that screen is going to look like. Um, Cause it's not easy to show that screen in a session. Yeah. And not everyone's going to have the cognitive capacity to either slide or tap the right button. Yeah. Important visual. Great. Thank you, Stephanie. Yeah, you got it. And just like everything else, they always come up with updates. I'm sure within the next year, we'll have even more safety features. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You got it. All right. Next up is Jennifer talking about the resource information processing speed following brain injury. This is a resource. It's one page, mostly designed for speech therapists as a clinical reference. So Jennifer, tell us a little bit more about this one. Yeah. So this resource was um, created for the SLP, like you just mentioned, it's related to the most recent NCOG 2.0 guidelines for cognitive rehabilitation, um, specifically following traumatic brain injury. So for those of you that don't know what NCOG is, it's an international group of creative researchers and clinicians, um, and their recommendations are supported by published research. Um, and they specifically said that they've had 160 new studies that have been published since the last guidelines were put out in 2014. And so they're constantly looking at the new research and providing updated recommendations, you know, every so 
often um, based on that research. So as my you know, job at Inpatient Rehabilitation Hospital, um, I'm the lead SLP of our traumatic brain injury team. The majority of my patients, whether they've sustained a mild traumatic brain injury or you know, more of a severe, severe traumatic brain injury, they often demonstrate or report some awareness of slowed processing. Um, this is likely due to the frequency of injury to the frontotemporal parts of the brain. If you think about those coup, contra coup injuries, um, oftentimes that part of the brain is affected. And so, you know, I've always kind of wondered myself, what's the best way to target, you know, information processing speed, trying to help somebody, you know, be able to process information a little bit quicker. Um, and INCOG kind of recommended one non-pharmacological option and also one pharmacological option. So first talking about the non-pharmacological option, um, this talks about, Developing, developing and practicing metacognitive strategies to compensate for attention problems. So, you know, information processing speed is underneath attention. And, um, you know, if you think about metacognitive, it's thinking about thinking. And it's really important for our patients to come up with these strategies that, you know, best work for them. We can go over, you know, a lot of different attention strategies with them, but you know, they have to figure out what best works for them. And so after a person figures out what strategies do best work for them, um, they're supposed to apply these in real world activities using time pressure management. I'm not going to go into, you know, a lot of detail with time pressure management right now, because I think in the future, we might come up with another resource related to this. But really, the goal of it is to increase a person's awareness of slowed processing speed um, and implementing these strategies before and during tasks to make them um, feel less pressured related to time. And so that's kind of that non-pharmacological -pharma option. And then they do talk about a medication. Um, and with this medication they recommend, it's called methylphenidate. Um, and really they specifically recommend it related to um, a person who may have, and this is gonna be maybe a mouthful, but it says low caudate dopamine transporter binding. So really that's something obviously that we do not, you know, assess or look into, but um, I think it's always important for us to be knowledgeable about medications that are out there. Um, that, you know, the physicians may be recommending or that our patients may be taking to know what it, that is for, um, how it could affect their cognition. Um, I know, you know, at my hospital, our physiatrists all the time get consulted by internists to, you know, ask about medication recommendations after traumatic brain injury. So again, I think it's just really important for us to be aware of those medications that can affect cognition and for this, you know, specifically that processing speed. Great, thank you. Yeah, and when I think about like the way that I was trained to treat processing speed is usually with something like a cognitive task, like a deck of cards where you're sorting them and you're trying to help the person get faster and faster at it. And so what I read from this resource is that maybe a more valid intervention would be training those metacognitive strategies. We're not necessarily trying to get faster and faster at it. We're trying to get better and better at understanding that it's taking us longer and that's okay, but that can involve all kinds of self-advocacy down yeah, the road. And it, and it may be that you just have to provide yourself, you know, extra time when you know that you're going to be you may be more anxious, just more um, nervous situation or just anything that might make 
a task more difficult, just giving yourself that extra time even. Yep, yep. Great, and then we always like to include information about the research behind the resources that we create. And so Stephanie, you created an article snapshot about these guidelines. Can you tell us a yes. little bit more? Absolutely. So Jennifer did a great explanation of what the INCOG um, guidelines are. It's that group of international individuals. And I, there was a speech language pathologist on the team. So I love that. And I would really encourage you all to go out and read these. They're open to the public. Um, there's quite a few of them because each one covers a different topic of cognition related to a, a moderate, moderate to severe brain injury. So the part two is the one Jennifer and I read and she did it for her, her piece. And then I dug a little deeper in for the article snapshot. So there were a couple of highlights. There's a lot of really good examples and information in these handouts. It's not, or these articles, it's not dry to read. It's very relevant for any kind of clinician working with someone with a brain injury. Um, but one thing they really talked about is just in general, the medical team should really screen for impairments in hearing, central and auditory processing, vision, anxiety, fatigue, and the sleep-wakeness disturbances, um, because all of these can influence attention, as we know. Another really big one that they talked about is computer-based those decontextualized programs, they're not supported by the research to generalize attention abilities for everyday tasks. So I don't know about you ladies, but oftentimes patients and their families will come into the session and they'll be like, well, what games can I play? What, what games can I play at home to work on my attention? And really what the research is saying is the games on the iPads or the phones you're only gonna get better at that game. It's not going to help you generalize your attention and processing speed for everyday activities. So I really just kind of pop that bubble of like, it's, it's okay for you to play them, but just know that that's not gonna help with that long-term recovery goal. Like if you just, you know, sometimes I just need to veg out and play a game for five minutes or so and then redirect that's fine. People can do that. I'm not saying not play games, but just know that it's not going to help your long-term attention and processing goals and the for recovery after a moderate, moderate to severe brain injury. Um, the research does not show attention or cognitive improvements after mindful-based meditation techniques. So that's if, you know, you do the guided meditation for a couple of minutes, it might help that person kind of calm down and focus, but in general, it's not going to help them improve their everyday attention and, and processing speed. Um, and I know mindfulness has been a big one for kind of speech pathologists and, and it definitely has its place, just kind of knowing its purpose and realizing it's just gonna help maybe with that moment of attention, but it's not gonna help maybe generalize. Um, another one that my patients ask me about is that transcranial magnetic stimulation where they put that magnetic um, the magnet over the brain. Um, we don't do that where I work. Um, and really what the research is showing is it really should only be in research protocols and not in treatment sessions. There really isn't enough information to say that it's helpful. Um, so I know that's always a question because people go on to Google and try to find all these answers as we all do, right? Um, the research does support use of metacognitive 
cognitive and dual tasks with everyday function um, to improve attention abilities. So for example, when I'm in the clinic, I might have my patient with a a brain injury come out with in the big gym area with me. We have nice tables, but it's a very big gym, so it's busy. And so he or she and I might be working on a cognitive task, but then I might have a timer and try to have them switch between tasks to kind of make it more simulating a busy work environment. Unfortunately, I can't go to work with them, but it's the best I can do in my environment at work. Um, So anything you can do kind of real life practical and then having that conversation, well, how do you think you're going to do? And then having the conversation afterwards, well, how do you really think it went for you? Um, So that's kind of that metacognitive piece. And then also just learning about modifying the home and work environments to reduce distractions is supported by the research. So yeah, I highly recommend people go read this one. So as you're talking, I'm thinking about neurofeedback. Do you guys know a lot about neurofeedback? I I don't. I don't know that term as well. World. And the only reason I know about it is because when I live in Colorado, I rented a house from a neuropsychologist and she was like, yeah, come on over. Like, I'll give you a free neurofeedback session. And I was just super curious, like what that was about. I think I was in grad school at the time. And like, I, I go in and like, she puts these headphones on me and I think they're playing some music and then there's like brain waves going on and then she leaves yeah. and eats her lunch. And then like 30 minutes or 40 minutes later, she comes back and she's like, okay, that's the session. And I kept asking like, could you like, <laughs> what is this doing? <laughs> can you explain to me the mechanism behind this or like what is happening to my brain? And she said a lot of like garbly gook. And there's a big argument right now going on in the neuropsych community about neurofeedback, especially as it relates to ADHD is what it's most commonly used to treat. So you've got like, you can bill for it and it's like the easiest neuropsych therapy session ever. And like anybody listening to this, who's like, oh my God, Megan doesn't know what she's talking about. Like there is some truth to neurofeedback. Just please email me at support at Cause I would love to learn more, but I do think that that's out there in the world. And that's a lot of times where people are going to get help with brain injuries or dementia. And so they're getting this information. They're like, yeah, we can just hook you up and like do this neurofeedback and your attention will improve. And I just don't think the research is there. And I think what I love about this INCOG group, this international cognitive group is there is a speech pathologist, there's a pharmacist, I believe, a medical doctor. So it's a very a interdisciplinary psychologist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think they're really trying to raise the bar and really question some of the tactics that are going on in speech pathology and neuropsych mm-hmm. and everywhere. So yeah, yeah, definitely agree that these are must read articles. Mm-hmm. They also did say that that attention processing, um, I don't know if it's like a workbook or something, that was not re- supported by the research either. So I don't know if people have that in their closets at work, but it's just. I think it's related. They talked a lot about the attention process training, which is a computer yeah. based training. Um, I do know that our outpatient therapy has that as a resource, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, they talked a lot about that because that was kind of their last yeah. research that related to that the really old one like are there cassette tapes involved there could be cassette tapes but it's like a digit span like four three six seven and then you have to say like in ascending order descending order 
we have it in our closet too, but I don't touch it because I read this research and well, I never touched it anyways, but um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to future attention resources that we come up with based on this material. All right, moving on to dysphagia and Parkinson's disease. Um, Stephanie wrote this one and it is a one page handout that has a nice graphic of anatomy physiology with some labels about what um, people with Parkinson's disease might be dealing with. And then it breaks it down between the oral pharyngeal and esophageal phase. So I am a part of our Parkinson multidisciplinary clinic team where I work. And so a patient will come in for a team's evaluation. So they'll see OTPT speech and the neurologist. And sometimes this is right after the person is learning about that they have the diagnosis, diagnosis of Parkinson's and they really just don't know what to expect. So I was very excited that the subscribers wanted um, this handout to be created because I think it does a really good job of just laying that solid foundation of Parkinson's and how does swallowing disorders play into that. Some people with Parkinson's might notice some swallowing changes early on, but generally it's more in the middle to later stages of the disease. But oftentimes people with Parkinson's have a limited self-awareness and don't always realize or report that they have a swallowing problem. Oftentimes it's family members or friends or maybe what we observe in the clinic with that bedside swallow of there might be something else going on here. So I really like how it has the oral phase and, you know, kind of those characteristics of the tongue pumping or the tongue might kind of rock in a roll back and forth or speed up really fast. And it kind of goes into detail about different things and how in the pharyngeal phase, you might have reduced tongue and throat movements for swallowing food. I know people talk about it feels like it's getting stuck in their throat. So this is just opening that door for a conversation about what maybe to look out for and what to maybe evaluate further with like a modified barium swallow study or a fees perhaps um, to really just get a better idea of what that person might be experiencing. Um, but I, I the, kind of the big takeaway for me is in the research, it just really emphasized that people with Parkinson's may not always be the best self-reporters for dysphagia. And so you can't really take it at face value. Um, and, and if they're not having swallowing problems, great, but oftentimes people are like, nope, I got no problem. And then I'll give them something to drink and they're coughing or their the cookie gets stuck in their throat. So um, just kind of take that as a grain of salt and do your good evaluation and see what you observe as a speech pathologist. Great, thank you. And you also wrote an article snapshot related to this. Can you tell us about this one? Yeah, so this one is characterizing quality of life and caregivers of people with Parkinson's disease and dysphagia. And this one just really highlights how caregivers of people with Parkinson's often have a reduced quality of life because they're taking on those extra responsibilities to maintain that safe living environment but also they might be losing a second income or they have to work more, but then feel that pressure of, I need to take care of my loved one, but also work and, and do everything else. And often um, informal caregivers such as spouses and partners and family members 
are the people caring for those people with Parkinson's. It's usually not a, a paid like uh, person coming into the house helping. Um, so that just adds extra stress to the family or the friends um, with that relationship with that person. Um, SLPs during the evaluations can use informal questions to kind of learn about how the caregivers and patients understand Parkinson's and how the swallowing might be involved. Um, like we said, maybe the caregivers noticing more of these swallowing changes versus the person with Parkinson's. As Parkinson's progresses, the caregiver's quality of life does also decline um, with some additional concerns about finances and transportation and work and that person has reduced leisure time or cooking can be stressful because the person may elect to have a modification to their diet and now that caregiver has to be the one making that food that's appropriate for the person. Um, so just really the, the big thing is just consider the caregiver in the evaluations too because if the caregiver has a, a decent quality of life, then our patients with Parkinson's will have a better chance of, you know, that better care and it, that they're going to have reduced negative impacts too. So the, the caregiver is a vital person in the team for caring for people with Parkinson's. Yep. Yeah. And I think with any of these diagnoses that are degenerative in nature, it's just a very isolating experience. And I, I hope that our society like evolves to value caretakers and care in general and aging. And we have systems in place that are able to take some of the financial and emotional burden off of these individuals and families. But I don't think yeah. we're quite there. Good to be I aware. don't think we're quite there yet either but also it's just I think we unfortunately live in a society where it's not okay always to ask for help and so just mm -hmm. maybe that could be the first step of just asking for help um, mm -hmm. and then just seeing what's available I mean it's not maybe a financial fix but at least it's something one thing that um, I worked with a doula for my pregnancy and birth and one thing that she had me do, which I thought was really, really helpful is she's like, you need to go out and ask someone for help, even when you don't need it, like just practice asking for help. <laughs> and it can be something really little, like you need your neighbor to go run, get something from the store or whatever it is, but just taking the time to do it before you actually have to do it was really helpful for me. So that might be some advice or an idea that you can pass on to family members. Yeah, I like that. Thank you. I know um, before COVID happened, I was in the process of trying to get a, a caregiver support group started at my hospital, um, kind of got all the supplies ready to get that going, but then COVID happened. But that's something that I'm really hopeful to get started in the future because I do feel like it would be really helpful and really, it's really important, you know, it, these life-changing events don't just happen to our patients. They happen to family members and, you know, their close friends and things like that too. And we just have to remember, you know, we do have to support that caregiver just as much as the patient. Yeah. And what an especially hard time to get that diagnosis, like during COVID where there's so many other things going on, the healthcare system was in such a 
disarray like as far as being able to go in and have somebody come with you for a visit um and then to be dealing with that in even further isolation I can't imagine so I think yeah now more than ever we need support groups to talk about that time and this is just kind of a side spin off of the pandemic but I don't know if you have all realized or noticed but I've been getting a lot more referrals for people with like primary progressive aphasia and Parkinson's and dementia and I, I have no data to back up this thought, but it was, I'm just curious of how that social isolation really impacted a lot of people. And I know we're going to be studying this for decades, but um, at least my colleagues and I were just talking about how we couldn't believe how many people we're seeing with primary progressive aphasia just a couple of years outside of the pandemic. So I'm just wow. wondering how that social isolation might've accelerated things. And delayed the diagnosis because I think there's a lot of like, yeah, oh, it's because of us, you know, it's we haven't been able to get out, or things are just yeah. new and different, and that's why it's harder for this person. Oh. Or, I mean, a lot of people didn't do their just physicals or go see their doctors because they didn't feel safe because we just didn't know. So, yeah, mm -hmm. it's probably a delay of a lot of things that played into it. It's not just isolation. All right, so we will move on to the next resource called Visual Action Therapy for Global Aphasia. And to give you a visual reference, this is, it's got some pages that have step-by-step -step instructions for how to use visual action therapy. And then we modernized the materials that go along with it. And so it's not the exact same words that are in the protocols that was originally written. Um, but there are words that we thought might be more relevant to people today. Um, and so Jennifer is going to kind of show us, I think, how this all works. I'll pass it off to you. Yeah, so this is that aphasia treatment approach that Megan was talking about that is kind of old, older. So um, this was researched back in 1982, and it's for individuals that have aphasia, but really global impairments of all language modalities. So, you know, severe verbal expression, severe auditory comprehension, severe, you know, reading comprehension and severe written expression. And so these are these patients where you're just feeling a little bit stuck as to, you know, what to work on with them because, you know, it's really difficult to find a strength that they have because their impairment is so severe. So what visual action therapy does, it, it, it trains the person who has aphasia um, to use symbolic gestures for items that are not present to, to be able to communicate their basic wants and needs non-verbally. So for example, you know, you might think of somebody kind of tipping their hand to request a drink. Um, and so this is what this treatment approach is. Um, the goal of it is to be able to teach our patients some sort of symbolic communication. And so research has shown that using visual action therapy can improve pantomimic ability as well as improve auditory and reading comprehension skills. Um, it talks about some barriers that you want to think of when choosing patients to complete visual action therapy with. So that includes, um, you know, a lot of these patients may also have severe limb apraxia, and that's obviously going to prevent them from spontaneously um, or demanded use of gestures. And so this would be a more challenging um, treatment approach to use with these patients. And also, you know, as I mentioned already, the severe auditory and reading comprehension is going to be a barrier. Um, and so 
these patients may have difficulty understanding the task. And so, um, you know, you may actually have to kind of tweak the steps, tweak the instructions to our patient's ability. So I know with a patient that I've used this with more recently, we had to start out with hand over hand um, and then kind of start to fade those cues. And that was able to get him to understand the task a little bit better. So this is kind of hierarchically structured. Um, there's three level programs that uses eight objects. There's large um, colored pictures. There's small drawings that are um, outlined in black. Um, and there's also some drawings showing a figure manipulating the objects or the target items. Um, when this research was done, they used the Porch Index of Communicative Ability, the PICA, um, to kind of assess progress with using symbolic gestures. So I'm going to um, just show you how to do one of the steps of visual action therapy. Um, to be honest with you, I've never gotten past level one myself. Um, just, I feel like it takes, you know, these patients a long time to kind of catch on to what they're doing. And at least at my uh, levels of care that I work on, you know, I, the average like to stay, you know, is two weeks, four weeks. So we don't have a lot of time to work on this. Um, so I'm going to demonstrate how to, how to do level one, step three, and this is small picture matching. So I'm going to try to set up my computer to where you can see it. Um, so I have it set up on this here. And so as you can see, there's eight different small pictures um, that go along with the objects that we have. And so I'm gonna read the directions for this one. Um, so you, I'm supposed to arrange the eight object picture cards randomly in a straight line in front of the patient. Um, and you wanna also think about, you know, a lot of these patients may have right inattention as well. And so just making sure that you're bringing their attention all the way to that right side. Um, and making sure that they are able to see all of the pictures in front of them before you start this task. Um, so in random order, I'm supposed to hand the object to the patient to be placed on the matching picture. And you do not remove each object before presenting the next one. So for example, here, I have some scissors. And so if the patient was here in front of me, I would hand that to the patient and then their goal would be to place it on the picture that matches it. So as you can see here, it's a picture of scissors and then they would place it on top. And you would leave that there as you hand them more items. So here we have a pen. And again, trying to find it on here. Open up that picture. This is a black and white picture of a pen. And so they're supposed to place it on top of that. Um, again, we're always tweaking um, treatments at times for our patients' needs. And so I, I had mentioned already, you know, starting with hand over hand with some of my more um, severe patients, but also even starting with a smaller field. I've done that before, a smaller field of pictures. So rather than having all eight in front of the patient, you know, starting with just two and building on that. Um, again, you're just trying to improve their understanding of what you're wanting them to do with this task. Um, just kind of, you know, 
with this resource, we did give you some pictures that you can use. Um, just for example, things that I've used in the past even um, are like the LARC items because you know you have the pictures and also you have the manipulatives with that. Um, Is that what you were using, Jennifer? Say that again. Is that what you were using? The LARC? No, this items? was actually so um, my colleague had a student create this um, for a project at the end of their semester. So um, they created a whole box full of, told you I was gonna knock everything down at some point, um, a whole box full of, you know, like larger pictures, all the items, the smaller ones. Um, so it was a really cool project because we really needed it. We had lost our other box full of items. Um, I was going to mention too, just kind of a little bit of a case study of a patient that I recently had um, and used this with. So um, I had a, a male that was in his 40s. He had sustained a traumatic brain injury after a tree had fell on his head in a logging accident. Um, the left hemisphere of his brain was greatly affected. He had exposed brain. Um, they ha he had to have a craniotomy due to swelling. And so he definitely had global language impairments. Um, he kind of had a lower education at baseline. He not, did not read at baseline. So that kind of made our treatment options um, more limited. Uh, one thing that, you know, was a strength of his was being able to copy letters, but because he didn't read at baseline, it, you know, that wasn't really a functional task for him. And so, you know, it made me think, you know, he's able to copy some sort of symbol that maybe we could use this treatment um, to help him communicate a little bit better. And so we actually um, took pictures of his personal items in his room. So his toothbrush, uh, the remote that we have in our hospital rooms, our water bottles, you know, the exact bo water bottle that we use. And we use those pictures to match the items too, just to make it again more functional for him and try to help him communicate better in his environment. Um, and by the time he left us, he definitely was using gestures better um, to communicate to communicate his basic wants and needs. All right, nice. And I, as I remember, the original protocol for this that was published in 82 had a picture of a pistol. She doesn't say it was a gun. I'm like, I don't know why we need a pistol for functional <laughs> communication. So that is why we made different ones. And I think the more that you can personalize it, the better, obviously, if mm -hmm. you have the ability to make those graphics, but yeah. Great, thank you. All right, and next resource is a two-page resource written by Stephanie comparing a video fluoroscopic swallow study in an esophagram. So the first page has um, some image examples comparing what you're going to see in the fluoro suite, and then the second page has a kind of compare and contrast chart as well. So Stephanie, tell us more about this resource. Yeah, absolutely. So I am fortunate enough to do swallow studies every Tuesday afternoon at my clinic. And in outpatient, we see a lot more patients who are referred to us who really have more esophageal dysphagia. Um, I mean, it's not that I can't do it. Luckily, I have some great radiologists who will let us kind of do an AP view and pan down. But sometimes it's really just valuable to just take a moment and kind of talk with the, the doctors who are referring these patients to us and just explain like, did you want a swallow study or are you really thinking more of an esophagram? 
I actually had a conversation with a, a doctor about this today. <laughs> so this, this would have been helpful. But um, what I like about this is it has some side-by-side -side pictures or actually like on the top are some modified um, lateral views of a swallow study down the oral and pharyngeal phase. And then the bottom part is an AP view looking more panning down the esophagus. And I really like kind of the, the table that we ended up creating because there's similarities, differences, and then clinical indications for both of them, comparing and, and contrasting them. Um, so just kind of going over some things. Sometimes people don't realize that a, a Zenker's diverticulum can be assessed by both. Sometimes doctors only think it can be done um, maybe with an esophagram. It can't, they don't necessarily think it can be as high up as it is, but um, I've definitely seen my fair share of them in outpatient. Um, it's confusing because barium's used for both of them. But what I really like about the, the modified barium swallow study is there's food involved. And so with an esophagram, there isn't any food involved. So that's why I do find a lot of value in doing that AP view and looking at that upper esophagus part, because usually it's the foods that people are talking about getting stuck or they feel that pressure there. And so I have been seeing that a lot with my patients that the food is getting stuck and then we can give that information to their doctor to kind of figure out the next steps for them. I do explain that as a speech therapist, I'm not really able to do anything structurally with the esophagus. It can't be, we can't do exercises to make it stronger or whatnot. Um, we do talk about maybe some modifications with taking smaller bites and alternating bites and sips, but really it's kind of just giving it more information to the doctor or the gastroenterology team. Um, and then maybe we'll, we'll talk about doing an esophagram after a modified bearing swallow study to learn more about the esophagus. Um, but sometimes it's just a starting point. Doctors just like to rule out that maybe the throat phase is okay. And really it is further down the patient's um, concerned about. Um, so I think this is a great kind of conversation piece to have with maybe radiologists or other doctors or other speech pathologists. Because I know I took a course on a modified barium swallow and like the esophagus, like esophageal phases of swallowing. And it really kind of encouraged us to um, get the courage to just say, nope, this is really important to the radiologist maybe who's put, giving you some pushback of like, nope, that's not what this study is. We can't look down. But then when I have that conversation on the side with them, it's like, but this has the food element. The esophagram doesn't. And it's really gonna give us some good information. I'm not diagnosing anything. I'm just relaying more information to a doctor. And so just kind of get that courage to kind of stand up and advocate for your patients because so often patients have done an esophagram first and they're kind of frustrated that nothing was seen, but I'm still feeling this. And then we do this swallow study and it's like, oh, yep, that's what you're experiencing. So I, I hope this is helpful for people. Um, this is kind of what I talk about every day. So it's very familiar to me, but maybe it will be um, new to others. But are, do you guys have any questions? I know Megan's been asking me some questions about this kind of yeah, stuff. I'm learning all of this. So this is super helpful. And I just want to clarify for other people who are new to this, like me, 
when you talk about food getting stuck, you're talking about that retrograde flow creating that sensation. Is that correct? No, no, actually, sometimes there is stasis in that upper esophagus and that food just won't move. Um, and so like maybe it will like slowly empty, but it's not always regurgitation. It's really just like it's it's very tight there and maybe mm -hmm. they need to talk to their doctor about maybe stretching or some other options for them. Because oftentimes it's very, um, it can be acid reflux or GERD related. And so that's why it's just information to pass along to the team to evaluate further. Okay, those are all of our new resources. We're going to move on to our case study. So this is a chance for us to talk about different clinical perspectives and also resources from the library that we would use for this case study. And I'll just read it out loud. Jim is a 24-year-old male who sustained a TBI during a motor vehicle accident in which he was a bicyclist riding his bike alone at night with no lights or visibility stripes. He was not wearing a helmet. He was in a coma for three weeks and then began inpatient rehab. It has been two years since his injury and he is frustrated with his progress in therapy. He is physically fit and has mostly reached his PT goals. However, he finds it difficult to focus at work, frequently getting distracted and losing his train of thought. He's thinking about becoming a respiratory therapist because he's good with machines and with people, but he doesn't know if he can focus enough to study for the tests. His physiatrist is recommending speech therapy, but he is skeptical because he doesn't see how speech therapy relates to being able to study because we have the most non-descriptive label for our profession ever. <laughs> I keep saying we need to change the name to neurolingual therapists. I like that. Yeah, I agree. That's even harder to say, but yeah. yeah. NLT. But that sounds like BLT. I don't know. Yeah, hey, make it know. easier to remember. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. Sometimes I even have trouble saying speech language pathologist and they're like, and, and you're the speech therapist, but it, it's a mouthful sometimes. It's just confusing because it's like we do so many other things. Speech is just a very, yeah. very small part. So it feels like yeah. it just kind of discredits us from the beginning. And then people are making up different names, which is fine. I do that too. Like I'm your memory therapist. I'm your swallow therapist. Mm -hmm. But then that gets confusing. Like who is this person? And For sure. Um, so this is an oldie but a goodie. Um, this handout is returning to work after a traumatic brain injury. And it's just talking about how oftentimes this is the big goal for people after a brain injury is getting back to work. Um, and there's a couple like ideas of how a person could get back to work. I don't have a vocational re, um, rehabilitation person at my site, and I, I know it's really hard to find one. Um, so sometimes checking in with the state um, department and seeing if there's a vocational rehab department um, is a great resource. To you what? Are those run by state governments? Yeah, sometimes they have like a, a state entity that will help people kind of return to work. Right. Yeah, I know at our outpatient yeah. facility, we used to have voc rehab on site that would help with mm -hmm. returning to work. Yeah, I wish we need, we definitely need some more vocational rehab therapists in outpatient. Um, but there's two kind of approaches that a vocational rehab might person might use. So there's the train then place, 
or there's the place then train. So with this patient, was his name Jim, I think? I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Anyways, the patient Jim, I kind of just talk about how, yes, speech therapy is definitely confusing. I know you can talk just fine, but we do focus on a lot of thinking skills. And I know your big goal is to get back to work. And so speech therapy really can help you work towards that, that, that goal of yours. And we, since you're already at work, maybe we could talk about some strategies or interventions that we can use at work to help you to stay more focused. And so sometimes including the, the patient's like supervisor, or sometimes if it's like a work comp in, in injury, you might have a, a QRC. I don't remember what that stands for, but it's a person who is assigned to kind of be the in-between between the patient and HR and kind of work on getting accommodations so they can return to work safely. Um, I'll have to remember what, I'll have to look that up and let you know, a QRC person. Um, But they can kind of help with those placements of transitional supports. And just really talking to Jim about how maybe we can modify the environment and maybe having some metacognitive challenge of thinking about, is learning a whole new job as a respiratory therapist? Is that feasible? Is that something we can do? Could we get you accommodations in school to help with testing time? And just really explaining that speech therapy is really the area that's going to help you ask all these questions you might not realize, and then try to set up supports to help you be successful with accommodations or strategies. Yep. Great. Um, QRC is, is... Qualified Rehabilitation Consultant. Sure, there you go. So maybe the same kind of idea as a vocational rehab therapist, but they're not the exact same because those are usually for work comp. Okay, great. Thank you. And then Jennifer selected a resource called Speech, or sorry, yeah, Speech Therapy and the Brain. Speech Therapy is more than Tell us about this resource. Yeah, so this is definitely a more basic resource, but this is something that I have printed and laminated in my office um, that I like to just kind of pull out the first time that I'm meeting a patient um, before an evaluation. You know, a lot of times when they're coming to inpatient rehabilitation, that's the first moment that they're remembering more of um, who or what speech therapy is working with a speech therapist. And so as we've already mentioned, you know, a lot of people say, why do I need speech therapy? I talk just fine. And so I think this is a good resource to pull out and just go over, you know, the different um, cognitive skills that we work on in speech therapy, more than just talking, more than just swallowing, um, but just some of those skills that Jim may be having trouble with um, or worry that he may, may be a barrier to him being successful with going to school to become a respiratory therapist. Um, just explain to him that these are different, you know, skills that we can target um, to try to reach his goals and just help him understand speech therapy and our role a little bit better. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I hope someday the streets are lined with as many physical therapy clinics as there are neuro-linguistic therapy (laughs) clinics. And people know where to go to get this kind of help because I I think that there's this huge opportunity in this gap in services and people try to get help from different places and 
sometimes they find the right person, sometimes they don't. And I think speech therapists are just so well positioned to be able to help people um, in this kind of situation. And our approach is so unique. I feel like we're some of the best advocates and biggest leaders when it comes to person-centered care and functional, like meaningful approaches to what we're doing rather than just plugging headphones in and playing music. Um, I chose the resource called Strategies for Executive Function Dysfunction. And this has kind of a, a listing of strategies that might be helpful for Jim. And so this would be something I would use during a session to be like, okay, let's think about what it's going to feel like to study. And let's figure out some ideas and approaches that are going to work well for you. And so going through different ideas like reducing distractions, writing to-do lists, doing one thing at a time, working in small chunks of time, slowing down, all of those things I think can help set Jim up for success to be able to study in a way that works for him and his brain um, and allows him to find success with his first classes so he feels like he can keep going. Um, but I think, you know, what a what a perfect scenario to have a patient come in with a very, very um, great personal goal that he wants to achieve and come alongside him and help him get there. Okay, so we're going to wrap up. I always just mention other resources that were just released by the PT and OT team because there's so much overlap in what we do across speech, occupational, and physical therapy. And as a member, you have access to all of the resources, um, including the ones created by PTs and OTs. So the OT team just came out with an abdominal precautions handout. So this would be useful for any patients you're working with who have been prescribed abdominal precautions, but maybe have a hard time remembering what those precautions are. So it's just a very simple one-page visual that shows a log roll um, with four basic steps to using the log roll method. So it's something you could put up in their room, something you could hand to a caregiver if they have one that's around most of the time. And then the OT team also came out with a financial management task called wants versus needs. So it's basically a discussion of looking at your budget and looking at your money management. What are the needs that you have? So what is essential to live and survive? Things that don't change over time versus wants. So things that are desired that you would like to have and that are not essential for survival. So this is a great resource if your patient has a functional goal of wanting to be able to live within their means and for whatever reason needs some cognitive su support to uh, differentiate wants versus needs. And that's our show for today. So like I said, you can get instant access to these resources and hundreds more with new content added monthly. Go to therapyinsights.com. All of the links are available in the show notes, so you can quickly find the resources that we're talking about. If you have any questions for us, and that can include any kind of case study question um, or wanting to know if there are resources for a particular patient that you're working with, you can reach us at support at therapyinsights.com. And as always, be sure to vote for what we create next and tell us any ideas that you would like us to see create because those are things that we read every month and we definitely listen to your requests 
and we'll have a new episode dropping on May 1st. So we will see you then. Thanks everybody. Bye. Bye.